Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. We live in a world of paradox. We live in a world of intense beauty and also profound ugliness. We live in a world of complex life in a world of ugly death. We live in a world that has beautiful music that can bring us to tears of joy and also country music. <laughs> we live in a world with love and joy and, and, and where we can be flying one moment, and also in a world full of pain and hatred and evil. And no matter who you are as a human being, no matter what faith you belong to or don't belong to, we all have to, at some level, account for these things. We all have to, at some level, try to explain why it is the world is the way it is. Um, why it is that there are such beautiful things in the world and in our lives, and at the same time, such, at times, horrendous things. Why the world is so often seemingly wrong, off track, broken, corrupted, disrupted. And as Christians, the scriptures that we have, our sacred scriptures, the origin stories that we have in our sacred scriptures, they attempt to give us the answer to some of these big, large, existential questions. And this morning, we're going to finish up our series on the first three chapters of Genesis by looking at Genesis chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, turn there with me, Genesis chapter 3. When we started the a series looking at the beginning chapters of the book of Genesis. I already had my eye on this week, Genesis 3, because I've never preached, I think, a full sermon just from the story here in Genesis 3. And because as I've studied it and read it and prayed through it, it's become more and more and more powerful and beautiful and poetic and transformative in my own heart and mind. So I'm hoping to share that with you this morning. It's a very well-known story. At the same time, it's a very sometimes misunderstood story. It's a story that we often put our own thinking into, provide details that aren't there. And it's a story that as I've studied, just in this past few weeks, I've come to learn lots of new and exciting and beautiful things from this text. Genesis 3 is where we'll be this morning. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Again, this is a continuation of a few weeks. We've been preaching through the first couple chapters of Genesis. Uh, these sermons are on the podcast if you've, if you missed out. Um, we're picking up Human beings have been made, man and wife. They're naked. They're not ashamed. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, quote, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Quote. Now there's lots of questions in Genesis 3, and we could spend hours just looking at the rhetoric used in Genesis 3. What are people communicating when they ask these questions? Are their questions true or not? Are their statements true or not? What are the relationships being built or torn down when speech is exchanged between characters in the story? The, the serpent here is referring back to chapter 2, verse 16. God had put man in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, and commanded him, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So we can ask ourselves this question. What is the serpent trying to get at? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We'll see the woman's response. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat 
of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, is the woman's response accurate? Is it nuanced? Does something change or shift? Well, to us it does. In Genesis 2, we're not told anything about touching this tree in the midst of the garden. That doesn't mean it didn't happen or wasn't there. It's just the narrative as presented to us starts to get nuanced and layered, and it opens doors for the serpent to continue this conversation. The serpent said to the woman, verse 4, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, if Eve had the privilege of listening to my sermon a couple weeks ago, she would have said, I'm already like God. I'm in his image. I'm an image bearer. I don't, I don't need to eat of a tree to be like God. Instead, though, she starts to look. Her stomach starts to growl. She starts to get a little hungry in verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise. This is a huge clue as to what this tree is all about. This tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. I love this God's response. He said, Who told you that you were naked? You've been naked, Adam, okay? Just a, just a, a newsflash for you. You've been naked. I've seen it all, Adam. Something happens, though, after they, they eat, after they go after this wisdom, and Adam feels some sort of shame about his nakedness, and when God comes walking, he tries to hide, and, and God calls out for him. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, well, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So, so Adam is exhibiting humanity's go-to move when we have committed a mistake. We blame, we push, we point the finger at someone else. Adam, why are you hiding? Why are you naked and afraid? Well, you see, there's this other person, and they did something. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And she shifts the blame as well. Notice, does the serpent ever tell Eve or Adam to eat from the tree? Does he ever suggest that they disobey God? No, we often give the serpent a lot bigger role in this story, a lot more nefarious, evil role in this story. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He'll bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. These potentially mortal Wounds are going to be exchanged between generations. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Notice, he doesn't say, I'll bring pain into childbearing. It's, just, it's going to go up to 11. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles. It will bring forth for you 
and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and into dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away every guard the way to the tree of life. In the very next sentence we read, Adam knows Eve. They conceive, have a child, and the story continues. This is the narrative of Genesis 3. I want you to notice just on its surface, if you were to talk to a sociologist or a psychiatrist, psychologist, they would be able to show you in Genesis 3 um, that when you read the story, it very much clearly looks like an archetypal, a kind of a, a universal story about childhood and adolescence. If you've had kids, you've seen this happen, or you're experiencing this at some point or another. Kids grow up trusting their authority figure, unaware that they're naked, have no shame. And then at one point in their life, for one reason or another, all of a sudden they go, uh-oh, I'm naked. And then the next thing you know, it's, get out of my room, I'm changing. And then they start questioning authority. Is that really what mom and dad said? Is that what they meant? Is that what's going to happen if I do that, if I touch that, if I go there? And after becoming sexually aware, they become sexually active, and then, like Adam and Eve, everything they touch as teenagers turns to chaos and disorder and destruction. It's very much, on one very kind of basic level, the story of humanity. It's a story that gets relived out in every household in Sugarland every day, every generation. And the most common way Christians have read this is through the lens of a fall. And so this is often called the story of the fall. The idea is that this is the first sin that ever happened in the world, and when this sin happened, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, when they committed this crime, they were given a punishment. And they in the world fell because of this punishment. And so they were expelled from paradise. They were punished with pain, immortality, death. Life goes from being this great life in paradise to being this evil existence outside of the garden in a world that's fallen, radically changed by their sin. This text has at times been used as a proof text for the inferiority or moral weakness of women. This is a text um, that often forces us to ask difficult questions about the relationship between faith and science, about talking animals, about human origins, about different things of that nature. It's a story that's sometimes read, I think, just very simply. It's a story about a test case where God gives the first human beings a test. They fail this Scantron test, and things go backwards because of that, and that's why you and I are in the world that we're in and why we need what we need when it comes to Jesus and his salvation. Now, I want to suggest that this interpretation, the sin and fall interpretation, is limited, if not a less faithful way that we can read the text. And there's, there's a few reasons for this. The first is, throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible, never are Adam and Eve and this decision to eat from the tree held up as an example of sin or as an example of the punishment for sin. 
or as the reason why the world is fallen and evil the way the world is fallen and evil. The focus actually is never on this, this story. It's on the result of this story and on what happens after this story. But this story, as if it's some great big moment where all of creation falls, is simply not how it's seen and interpreted and used throughout the rest of the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. The story itself doesn't seem to use language like sin and crime and punishment. Instead of a disobedient action that comes with punishment and guilt, it speaks more of distrust and the shame that comes from that, the disorder that comes out of that shame. Instead of speaking of a dramatic change in the nature of the world, it speaks more to the nature of the way humans exist in the world and the effects of that functioning of the humans. Instead of focusing on the serpent or, or concluding that the serpent is some ancient, arch-evil enemy of God. The serpent here is simply another creature that God created. He's cunning and wily, but this adjective in Hebrew has no negative connotations to it. He's just a smart, wise creature. He's not evil. He's not the one who does anything wrong, and he's not the one who even explicitly suggests that anything wrong be done. It's a story of Adam and Eve, a story of two trees and a garden, and a story of a mistake and the results from that mistake. Now, I want to suggest that there's a better way to read the story, a more intentional way to read the story, that, that this story is more than a story about magical trees and a garden paradise. And it's more than a story about a talking snake and a sin that he introduces into the world. And it's more than a story about the consequences the world faces because these first two humans failed the first test ever given to them. And the way I want to do that is by, is by trying to think through how the ancient Israelites would have read this story. And we've been working on this throughout the last few weeks as we read through the book of Genesis. We've got to remember that Genesis 1 through 3 was not given to Adam and Eve. So this is not a memoir they wrote or not a book that was given to them in old age. They could remember back to that one day with the serpent and the trees in the garden. Hebrew didn't exist right way back here. There wasn't language. There, I mean, there wasn't written language. There wasn't writing, there wasn't books, things of that nature. This is a, a story that was written that came into form by the Israelites, inspired by the Holy Spirit. A story written for the Israelites, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it's a story, I believe, that serves as kind of an explanation for their personal experience in the world and for their national experience in the world. And as we'll come to see, it serves as a great explanation for our universal experience as human beings in the world. And so what we want to do is we, we want to really focus on how an ancient person might read the story here in Genesis 3, not add anything into the text, simply take it for what it is and see what kind of beautiful poetic things it might illustrate to us. And I think it does this very, very well. So here's the way into what I would think is a more faithful reading of Genesis 3. We've got to pay attention to symbols. There are three big symbols in this story. There's a garden, there's trees and their fruit, and there's a serpent. And it's important that we recognize that they are symbols. I'm not trying to say they're not real or they're not important. I'm just trying to say they, they refer to something more than themselves. It's more than just a story about an ancient talking snake with these two human beings and it's just this time capsule of a historical event. It's a profound, symbolic, rich, theological, poetic story. We've already talked about some of these symbols. We'll start with the garden. What is the garden a symbol of? 
Well, if you were here with us last week, you'll know in the ancient Near Eastern world, the garden is a symbol of the temple, the tabernacle, the place where God dwells. It is about sacred space, not just green space. This is one of the, the mistakes we make. We, we read about the garden and the story in the garden, and we think this is just about this, this beautiful forced paradise that God had created. But for an ancient person, a garden indicated something to you about the type of space that it was. It wasn't just a great honeymoon spot. It was a great spot to worship. It was a great spot to walk in the cool of the day with the Lord. It was about sacred space. It was the center of order. God had been ordering the universe, creating the world in just the right way to function properly. And the garden is the center of this. It's not a perfect place. It's simply the center of what God has created. The significance of the garden is more on God's presence than it is on the human paradise aspect of it. And this helps us when it comes to time to understand what the trees represent. These two trees we have in this story. Now, this sacred tree motif occurs throughout the ancient Near East. This is not an unusual thing for Eastern people to write about in the ancient world. And so when the Israelites come up with this story, this is not the first time People in this time or culture are hearing stories about trees in a garden. And the garden gives us good context to understand these trees. These are not just isolated trees in a random garden. These are trees that are put in the middle of sacred space. These are trees that somehow belong to and are being used by God. In fact, when you look at the trees, we, we see very clearly that they provide what is God's to give. The trees function as a sort of um, conduit for God to give certain gifts to the human beings that he's made. We've got two trees placed in the middle of this garden. The first is the tree of life. Then the second is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Both of these things are gifts from God that only God can give humanity. God is the source of life, of all life. And for human beings or anyone to have life, they have to have it given to them. It's something that's found in his presence. This is the truth throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. The life that human beings have is not an independent life apart from God. It's a life that we share in. God allows us to share in his life. You have this tree here. And then you have the second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Perhaps it would be better to translate this for you and I as the tree of wisdom. I think there's a good clue when Eve tells us this is a good place to get wisdom. This is the center of order. You know, wisdom is the ability to discern order. And just like life, wisdom is God's. God, by definition, is wisdom. He's the source and center of wisdom. And his presence in the garden establishes a center for wisdom. It's this tree. And God provides all of these trees and fruit for the human beings to eat. And then he prohibits this one, the one that has wisdom. I don't think this is because God is planning on withholding wisdom from the human beings. I think it's because of the very nature of wisdom itself. Wisdom is not something you can download. Wisdom is not a gift you can give and kind of strap it on and all of a sudden you have wisdom. Wisdom is something you have to attain through a process, through time. Wisdom is something that comes through instruction. And instruction is only possible with what? A relationship. There has to be a teacher, an instructor, one who owns the wisdom, who's passing it on to someone else. And so God prohibits them from eating from this tree of wisdom, I think, not because he's 
seeking to withhold wisdom simply because wisdom is not theirs to take hold of. It's a gift for God to give them in time with proper instruction. The scriptures place so much emphasis on wisdom. The world was created in wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning and the source and the ground and the end of wisdom. Our relationship with God is all about wisdom. Wisdom in the Bible concerns seeking the proper order, the healthy order, the flourishing order of all aspects of life. So in our personal relationships, with a wise way to love and forgive and make decisions and speak, our relationship with God, wise ways to worship and experience and pursue God, our relationship with the rest of creation, with decision-making that we've been tasked with as cultivators in the garden. Wisdom is the result of us perceiving order, pursuing order, preserving order, promoting order. And in taking from the tree, what Adam and Eve do is they kind of set themselves up as the satellite center of wisdom apart from God. These trees represent gifts God has for humanity. And instead of imagining the world as this perfect place that loses its perfection because of this sin committed by Adam and Eve, I think we should imagine the world as a project. This garden as a place with a future and a story. And all along, Adam and Eve were meant to grow in wisdom. They were meant to become closer to God, to learn more about God, to become more wise, to look and reflect more of God's character. It was always supposed to be a process. Our earliest church theologians imagined creation in this manner. And so Genesis 3 is less a story about paradise lost, as if God had set up this perfect Lego building, and then Adam and Eve as toddlers come in and kick it over, and then for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, God's just been trying to get it right back to where it was in the beginning. Which, if you think about it, is a pretty weak view of God in creation, a pretty big view of us and our ability to mess things up. The early theologians, the early church fathers, always imagined creation as a, a journey. The end of creation being higher and better than what it started as. Adam and Eve, over time, being closer and reflecting more of God's wisdom than they did originally. The issue is the way they tried to get there. You have a garden, you have trees, then you have the serpent. The serpent in ancient Near Eastern literature is a chaos creature. It's something that comes and represents non-order or disorder in the world. And, and we have questions like, why is the serpent in the garden? Well, the story doesn't actually say he was in the garden. And the story doesn't actually say that the whole world was perfectly ordered. In fact, it seems like there was non-order, at the very least, if not disorder, in the world because they were commanded to what? Make order. Keep it. Grow it. Cultivate what I have created. What happens is they eat from the tree of wisdom, and they're expelled from the garden. The trouble comes when human beings try to seize wisdom on their own terms. God wasn't withholding it, but it has to be attained in a proper way. Wisdom's a gift to be given, not to be taken on our own. And when Adam and Eve do this, like I said, they, they try to set themselves up as like a satellite center apart from God with their own wisdom. And you can imagine what happens Think of children when they decide, I'll do it my way. I know what's best. What happens to their room? What happens to their relationships? What happens to the things that you've entrusted them with? They get broken. They start to fall apart. They fail. They get dirty. They get messy. Your intention for them is not fully seen through. 
I think we misread Genesis 3 when we think of this prohibition from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as an arbitrary test case, as like a, a made-up rule just to see whether human beings would be obedient or not, as if God could have just as easily said, don't walk on the beach. Give them some time, and we'll see whether they walk on the beach or not. If they do, bam, punishment. If they don't, I guess we're good to go. We'll need to rework this scripture. I think what they took or tried to take wisdom is as important, if not more, than the fact that they took it. They tried to do things on their own. They tried to have wisdom independent of God. They tried to be who they were supposed to be in creation with their own intelligence, with their own sense of order and justice and righteousness. And the result is not good. Now, this, I think, allows us to think through some of our more questions, some of our more nerdy people, if you're like me, have when it comes to these stories. So, so I'm not a scientist, and I defer to experts generally in matters of science and things like that. Um, what I do know is most people who study the way the world works have a hard time imagining the world as it is ever existing without death being a part of it. Not just like human death, even like plants and cellular death, right? Death seems to always kind of be a part of it. And when Christians set up theological systems where there's no such thing as death or suffering, corruption in any way, then all of a sudden, because of one moment in time, death enters into the world, we look back and go, well, how did anything exist beforehand? I think if we don't put anything into the story, I'm not saying I have answers to this, but that becomes less of a problem. What if death was always a part of creation, but not in an evil or wicked way? It's just that Adam and Eve always had, what, access to the solution, the tree of life, immortality. We'll talk about this when we talk about hell in a few weeks. We spent a few weeks on eternal life and possible eternal punishment. Later, Greek philosophers, writing long after Genesis 3, would make an assumption that all human beings are immortal. We all live forever, and therefore, any punishment or reward has to be immortal as well. This is not an assumption, as we'll see, that's in the Old Testament. In the Scripture, life is given by God. And if one walks away from God, they walk away from the source of life. What if it's simply the case that because of this decision, this expulsion from the garden, Adam and Eve now no longer have access to that which would sustain them, continue to give them life. Death then transforms into something nefarious. Death then becomes something that ruptures and helps rupture the relationship between God and man. Death then becomes something that makes human beings fearful and willing to sin and do evil things to avoid and push it away. Pain in childbirth. What if these things didn't have to appear out of thin air because of this one decision? What if they just took on a different nature, different shape, one that now was more associated with the alienation and the relationship, the disruption in sacred space that we find here in Genesis 3? The second big question people have is, is the history of human beings. You know, you and I aren't the only homo species that have ever existed on the earth, according to our best archaeologists and historians. 
We're one particular kind, the homo sapiens, the wise humans. We named ourselves, so we get that prerogative. But again, if you, you look at kind of the best research and data out there, there were more than just us. We killed most of them. That is the kind of our legacy. And so we wonder, what does Adam and Eve mean for the rest of all of these other creatures? What, would there have to be two right at the beginning who set the terms for everything else that would ever happen on the earth? What if it's just simply the case that at some point in the process of creation, human beings decided to not seek their wisdom in God to be the image bearers of creation, instead to seek it on their own? And like we see throughout history, what happens when human beings take wisdom into their own hands? Destruction. Chaos. Disorder. If creation, if the garden, if this is all about a sacred space ordered correctly, then what happens in Genesis 3 is we see the sacred space corrupted. We see this order disordered. We see chaos come into creation. We see the results of human rule over the world when humans don't have a good source of wisdom, righteousness, justice, intelligence. Perhaps better than reading this as a story of sin and fall is reading this as a, a story of the maturation or the growth of humanity, the world of God's creation, where the process of God's creation kind of goes off the rails. God's intentions for humanity and creation gets bumpy. Obstacles are placed in the way of what God has intended. What if understanding Genesis 3 as paradise lost is a wrong way to understand the story? What if it's not just a story about magical trees and a garden paradise, about a perfect world being ruined by a speaking snake, about consequences the world faces because of a failed test? What if instead it's a story about the presence of God on earth and what a relationship with him makes available? What if Genesis 3 is a story about God's intentions for creation being temporarily derailed because of human mistrust in God? What if Genesis 3 is a story about the nature of a world populated with humans who have no access to life and who are seeking wisdom on their own? Instead of paradise lost, maybe we can understand Genesis 3 just to be a story about paradise ungained or paradise thrown away. We don't lose paradise so much as we forfeit sacred space and our ability to navigate life successfully in creation with God's wisdom. This, I think, illustrates for us why this is not an arbitrary prohibition and why it's not an arbitrary consequence. It's not that God came up with some sort of test to see whether we'd be obedient or not, we failed, and therefore he just slapped death on top of us that human beings were put in the garden with access to life and we walked away from that life. And what happens when you walk away from life? You lose it. And what happens to yourself and the people around you and the world that you're supposed to be having dominion over when you look for your wisdom in yourself and not in God, the source of all wisdom? Destruction, violence, chaos, disorder, brokenness corruption. I think Genesis 3 is a very powerful explanation of why the world is the way it is right now. What is human history, if not one extended lesson of what happens when human beings try to do it their own way? I mean, what are these stories? What are the history books, if not one repeated example 
over and over and over and over again of a human being, of a society, of a nation, of a generation saying, I think I've got it. I think I'll, I think I'll do it the way it makes sense to me. And what do we see if not exactly what Adam and Eve see? Expulsion from the garden. Death, corruption, pain, suffering. Genesis 3, I think if we allow it to speak to us, does so, and it does so beautifully. I think there are three things that we can, we can see illustrated in our own lives from Genesis chapter 3. The first is about the primary temptation of being a human being. What is the primary temptation we face as human beings? What does the serpent come after in Genesis 3? Is God really like that? Did God really say that? Is God withholding something from you? He comes after the character of God. Can you really trust God? Does he have your best interest at heart? Does he know what's right for you? Is that what he desires for you through his commandments and instructions? It's not so much that there's this first sin committed in Genesis 3, and it's not so much that it's about rebellion and disobedience or pride, as it is a lack of trust, a breach in this relationship that's supposed to be defined by trust, or another word, faith. And I would suggest this remains for you and I one of the biggest obstacles we face in our lives. The most important thing about a relationship with God is is what comes into our mind, our mental image of God. How do we conceptualize God? What do we think of God as like? Because I'll say this, you can never outrun your picture of God. So if you imagine God to be a bully or to be a tribal leader of your group out and against everyone else, you shouldn't be surprised when that's how you act. And you find it hard to love people who aren't inside of your group. If you imagine God to be loving and forgiving, the Father and Creator of all, then you shouldn't be surprised when you're able to love and accept others. You're able to pursue other people. I still think if I had to diagnose one of the biggest missteps of Christianity, one of the biggest issues we face because we're Christians in a modern Western world, it would be the picture of God. Who is God like? Is God more like Zeus or is God more like Jesus? Is God really like a first century Palestinian man? I think that's the most fundamental issue we all have to ask ourselves every day. I think almost every problem in our theology, almost every problem in our spiritual walk, almost every problem you see in our body politic when it comes to Christianity, all boils down to this one fundamental question. Who is God really like? an image that we have projected or come up with, a constellation of different stories and descriptions? Or does God look like Jesus? Is God Christ-like? Is Jesus telling the truth when Philip says, show us the Father, and Jesus says, you've, you've seen the Father, you've seen me? Is Hebrews being honest when it says, in Christ we have the fullest revelation of the character and nature of God? We don't need a composite picture. We don't need to do our investigative detective work to pull together what God might be like. Look no further than Jesus and him dying on the cross for your sins. This is who God is like. We are all too often like Eve 
faced with this question. Genesis 3 also illustrates for us the nature and beauty of, of God's creation and the story of his creation and new creation. I think it, like I said, gives us a great explanation for why the world is the way it is right now. You see, the world's nature didn't fundamentally change after Genesis 3. This is why it's still so good. This is why there's still so many awesome things in the world. When we try to imagine the world is only evil because of sin, we either have to lie or we repress some really weird emotions inside of us and it creates some really weird people. Maybe you've met them, I'm not sure. Now, the, the world's still fairly well ordered. There's still a lot of great things in the world. But what could account for so much of the tragedy that we experience so often? Human beings placed in positions of authority who decide to go their own way. Who try to do things apart from God and God's wisdom. It explains to us, too, the, the new world God's creating. What is God up to? What is God up to after Genesis 3? It's the very same thing he was up to in Genesis 1 and 2. The project has never changed. If we take anything from Genesis, this is what we should take. It's the same. The project is still the same. What is God after? He's after a sacred space where human beings can flourish in relationship to him, finding life and wisdom from him, meeting that to the people and creation around them. What is God after in our life as the people of Jesus? He's after gardeners who cultivate and keep and work sacred space. What is God up to in Jesus? In Jesus, God's own son, what is God doing? He's offering his own life. What is Jesus, if not the tree of life embodied for us, having a name? In Christ, we have life. In Christ, we have eternal life. In Christ, these guards are taken away at the table when we're invited to participate in the body and blood. Is this not our path back into the garden? In the book of Revelation, when it's describing this new creation, what's in the middle of this new creation, you might wonder, and you might not be surprised if you're a reader of Genesis 3 to find out there's a tree, and it's a tree of life. And who has free, beautiful, unfettered access to it? The people of Jesus. They live in the sacred space where God dwells with them, and they are his people, and he is their God. How do we know the right way to live, the right way to act, who we should be as people? Well, because Jesus is our wisdom. So you say Jesus is the wisdom of God embodied in front of us. How can we become that wisdom? How can we act in that wisdom? Well, good news, he's given us his Holy Spirit. And the role of the Holy Spirit is to form that inside of us, to shape and mature our character into the type of people Adam and Eve are supposed to turn into. We have instruction. We have the relationship. And I think if we can read Genesis 3 more faithfully, it'll help us out with, with a problem that many of us face. One of the things I encounter a lot as a pastor is people surprised by the fact that they love Jesus, they want to follow Jesus, they've accepted him in their heart, they've been baptized, and they expect that one moment in time to fix them as people. And so they get confused. Well, wait a minute, because I'm, I'm still pretty disordered inside <laughs> And my actions are still pretty disordered sometimes. And what's the disconnect here? Well, it's a process. It's going to take time. 
perhaps wisdom can't be given outside of a process that occurs in time with instruction in the context of a relationship. Maybe if we read Genesis 3 more faithfully, we wouldn't be set up for this false expectation. It's not that Adam and Eve had the total package and lost it in one moment, and so we can encounter one moment and get it back. No, what is our experience as Christians? It's simply walking in the intended path of Adam and Eve, growing in holiness and righteousness, learning and trusting and walking in the wisdom of God revealed to us in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the final thing that, that Genesis 3 can illustrate to us is our path, our role as Christians in this world. We, we live right now in a world east of Eden, kicked out of the garden. And human beings, in one way or another, are all on this path, this re-entry path. We're looking for doors to the garden in all, all kinds of places. We look for it in, in art. We look for it in sexuality. We look for it in other people. We look for it in religion. We all seem to have some sense that there are these trees out there. There's this garden life, this sacred space. And then we're desperately searching, and, and most of the doors we open, they either end in disappointment or tragedy. And our role is, as people who've been brought back to the garden is to show other way, others the, the way back, is to be the ones announcing where the door is, what the door is, what it looks like, the good news that God in Christ through the Spirit has redeemed this world, is in the process of redeeming this world, that we can participate in that in worship and through a relationship with him. What's our, our role in the world? It has much less to do with the exact type of job you take, with the exact house you live in, with the exact type of college you go to, and more with the type of human you are. And the way you use that humanity in whatever house you end up in, or whatever college you go to, or whatever job you end up taking. Do you use it to partner with Jesus? Do you use it to show others the way? Do you use it to cultivate and keep and expand sacred space, God's presence? Or are you falling into this trap of collapsing in on yourself, seeking to do it your own way, focusing on your own enjoyment, your own selfish gain? The Gospel of John, his, his resurrection story, has always been one of my favorites of the, the resurrection stories we get in the Gospels in the New Testament. And if you've been at this church for a couple of years, you've heard me talk about it like 18 times. It's just so beautiful and poetic to me. Mary was in the garden. Jesus was buried, crying. And there's this man that she, she correctly mistakes as a gardener. It's Jesus. He's resurrected. The new Adam. And he wipes her tears away. He calls her by her name. He equips her with the spirit to walk in the path she was always meant to walk in. That is the world that we live in. That is the place in this world that you and I occupy. That is the identity and vocation given to us as the people of Jesus. The people come to worship, come to the table, sent out into the world in the power of the Spirit. How sad is it that humanity has, has gone from understanding the world and their place in it as a 
garden, a sacred space, into a machine of production, into simple biological cause and effect, into a short and temporary time period for us to gather all that we can possibly gather on selfish enjoyment. I mean, just how tragic is that? And how beautiful the heart of a person transformed by the Spirit to imagine the world more faithfully as Genesis images it to us, to imagine our role in the world more faithfully, to take our place as human beings, growing in wisdom, receiving life from God himself, and helping others receive that life as well. Will we see the world the way scriptures want us to see the world? Will we see ourselves and act in the world the way the scriptures want us to see ourselves and act in the world? This morning, will we worship and celebrate the truth that life has been reopened? You and I have access to it. And we are invited to participate. These are the questions the Spirit puts out in front of us.